Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. So we are in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have a copy of God's Word, if you would join me there. I had Pastor David read the text from the 11th chapter of Isaiah because of an inextricable connection between the words of the Lord there as pertains to the wearing of the armor, the belt of righteousness, if you will, by the Lord himself, coupled with the challenge that we have in verse 14. The latter part of that verse says this, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now we've been in a series for the last several weeks simply entitled The War. It's a very critical time in the life of our church as we sit poised to to accomplish some amazing things for the kingdom of God and as is usually the case our enemy's not happy about that and so at an individual level, at a family level, at a local church level, he's going to do everything he can to upend what God intends to do in the life of Covenant Church. So his people need to be well armed. You need to be well armed for yourself for your family and for your church. And so we're spending the summer months talking about what it means to wear the armor of God. That's the essence, if you will, of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not complicated. It's not hard to understand. Spiritual warfare is not necessarily sensational. Uh, it doesn't involve things like some, you know, some people just watch too many exorcist movies. That's not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is putting on what Paul describes here as the panoply of God, and he uses the metaphor of the armor that was worn by a Roman soldier in the ancient world. And today, we're going to look at another piece of that armor, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, you need to ask a couple of things when you read those words, the breastplate of righteousness. The first one is this, what is righteousness? What is it? And how does it connect to the metaphor of the breastplate? Well, in order to answer that second question, I want to share a story with you, a true story, if you will. It goes back to a woman named Terry Schaefer, who was working extra uh, extra hours at night because she wanted her husband David to have a Christmas present. How many of you, how many of you ever, have ever worked extra hours or you've gone without and you've saved some extra money because there was a child or a spouse or somebody you really wanted them to have something either for Christmas or their birthday? Yeah. Well, Terry Schaefer was one of those ladies and in September of 1977, so this goes back a little ways, many of you weren't even born then. She wanted her husband David to have this present, and in her mind, this wasn't just something he, she wanted him to have. This was something that she felt like he needed to have, and she got so excited when she finally got the money to buy this present that she went on out and bought it in October, brought it home and wrapped it, and that night, they had Christmas in October. I like early Christmas too, don't you? Isn't it great? They Early October. Well, that wasn't just a fun time for this married couple. It actually turned out to be a very fateful decision because just a few days later, sitting home in the evening on her own, there was a knock at the door. Terry Schaefer went to find a police officer telling her that her husband had been shot in an armed robbery at a drugstore. But very quickly on the heels of that announcement, he also said to her, your husband is fine. He's at the ER getting checked out, but the reason he's fine is because he was wearing your Christmas present. 
See, Dave was a police officer. And in 1977, these things weren't standard issue the way they are today. They were also terribly expensive. They were also a lot heavier, I would imagine, than the one that I'm uh, showing you right now. But this is, uh, this is a Kevlar vest. This is designed to absorb ammunition that is coming at you at a rapid pace because it's just been fired from a gun. And so when Paul describes the breastplate of righteousness, he's describing this piece of the armor right here. It covered up this section of the body, which tells me, should I put this on? Will it look ridiculous? You're like better you than me, pastor. I think if Paul were writing these words in the 21st century, he might have said it this way. Having put on the Kevlar vest of righteousness. You see what this does? It covers all the vital organs. Okay? It doesn't protect you from every part of your body being pierced, but it protects those parts of your body that if they take a hit, you're going to be a lot more likely to die. I brought this up right before the first service, and all the, all the worship team were like, uh, is there something we need to know? Like, has there been a threat? Like, no, everything's cool. Everything's cool. But that's what this is. The breastplate of righteousness is essentially, in the 21st century, a Kevlar vest. And even in the ancient world, when you went into battle, you had to have this in order to protect yourself. I have a dear friend who has seen combat both in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and he tells me that the military is trained when they take aim on an enemy to not just pull the trigger, but especially if you're armed with an automatic weapon, to start your aim at the lower right side, and as you spray bullets at the torso, you go left and you go up. And that this is how you can more, be more assured that you might eliminate your enemy. And the reason for that is that spray of bullets, if you're not protected, is going to go right through here. So the first thing it's going to hit, in all likelihood, is going to be your liver. Then it's going to puncture one of your kidneys. Then it's going to simultaneously hit both of your lungs and in all likelihood sever the spinal cord. And then the last thing it's going to hit is your heart. And if all, all of those vital organs get hit at once, your chances of survival are near Zero. Now, I want you to think about all of those dynamics as we look at John chapter 8 together, because this is what Jesus tells us about our enemy. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Your enemy and mine is a murderer. And here's the other thing. He's good at it. He is very good at what he does. This is the same enemy that inspired Pharaoh and then later on, a few a millennia later, a Galilean king named Herod to murder an entire generation of Hebrew boys. This is the enemy that inspired Saul of Tarsus to preside over the stoning of Stephen as he powerfully proclaimed the gospel. This is the enemy that entered Judas Iscariot, who would later betray Jesus and turn him over to the authorities. And the ultimate result of that would be his, his unjust trial and his crucifixion. We have an enemy who is dangerous. We have an enemy who is a murderer. That's the warning. Here's the hope. God has given us a piece of spiritual armor that is like Kevlar against anything that your enemy can throw at you. He's going to aim at your vital organs, 
But if you're wearing the armor of God, and specifically if you're wearing this thing called the, the breastplate of righteousness, everything your enemy throws at you will ricochet off of this and be absorbed elsewhere. Or, in the case of the Kevlar, it'll just be absorbed in the Kevlar. But nothing, nothing is going to hurt you. Now, that here's, here's what we need to understand, then. If I want that kind of protection, I need to know what this vest is, all right? And I'm going to take this off now and be a really bad example of not wearing it because it's hot under these lights. But what this is, Paul tells us, is righteousness. So we need to know what righteousness is. How does the Bible define righteousness? Well, to be righteous simply means to be just. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, we actually uh, see that, that described as a characteristic, one of the attributes of God. Pastor David read it at the outset of this worship service in Isaiah 11. God himself possesses a belt of righteousness, and he gives that to us because God is inherently, perpetually, thoroughly, eternally righteous, which should excite us because that means nothing's going to pierce him nothing's going to defeat him and what he possesses in that realm he can and will give to you he will give it to me nothing can pierce him the other thing about this characteristic of righteousness is that it is a communicable attribute see there, there are attributes of god there are things that are inherent in god's person that are incommunicable for example he is omnipresent he is everywhere at all times we we don't have the capacity for that we can't do it. We're mere mortals. We're confined both by time and space. But what we can be by God's grace is righteous because righteousness isn't incommunicable. It's a communicable attribute. And so God grants us this righteousness and we can share that attribute with God. We can be protected from the vital attacks the enemy will put on our faith. You and I, brothers and sisters, can be righteous. But here's the bad news. We're not, at least not inherently. Here's the further bad news. We don't want to be righteous. Uh, back when I was growing up in church, we didn't use screens like this. We had these things called hymn books. Some of you probably remember that. And you, you would open the book to a certain page. You would all sing the hymn together. And there were several of those old hymns that I loved just dearly. And I was just in some private time of worship this past week. And, and one of those just, just really just, just blew my heart up. It was called At the Cross. And some of you may know this, but it starts out like this. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? And then there's this wonderment of a rhetorical question that goes this way. Would he devote that sacred head? Would he give up all of that for such a worm as I? Okay? Now, over time, that word worm started to rub people the wrong way, apparently. And so the hymn was rewritten. Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Well, it's still theologically accurate, but a little softer. And if you read some of the more modern hymnals, you see, you see it's been updated again. Would he devote that sacred head for such a one as I? And so when I, just sensing that, that time of worship with the Lord, I, I just posted that, but I posted the old version and it shocks some people. Like, I got private messages. Like, you really believe we're worms? I'm like, well, it, what I believe is irrelevant. Let's talk about what we really are, right? 
We're not worms. We're precious people. We're Really? Have you looked at the world? It's a dumpster fire inside a prison riot. That testifies to a lot of things. The inherent goodness of humanity is not one of those things. I, I, think, I think the author got it right. I think Isaac Watts got it right. Worms. I know it sounds really bad, but it actually sounds pretty good compared to what the Bible actually says. Would you like to take a look at, at Romans 3? Let, here's the point I'm trying to make. God offers us righteousness, but we don't intrinsically have it. we got to get it from somewhere else, but our nature from birth gives us a propensity to not want it. Look at Paul's words in, in Romans chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Okay, so this is, this is square one. This is where we got to start. If you want to wear the breastplate of righteousness, you need to understand you don't intrinsically have it. I don't intrinsically have it. And within my nature and yours, we don't even want it. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And not, you right, remember last week, all means all. None means none. Right. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their, uh, their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is upon their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Worm actually sounds pretty good. Doesn't it? This is who we are. We do not have the capacity or the will to wear the breastplate of righteousness. So we have an enemy that's actually worse than Satan. You saw him when you looked in the mirror this morning. He's worse. Our number one enemy is our sin nature, what the Bible calls the old man. This is who we are by nature. We don't know God. As soon as we're old enough to make choices, we choose against God. We don't know him. We don't want to know him. Even our most noble deeds, in fact, the scriptures tell us when we are in an unredeemed state, we have some ulterior sinful motive behind that which even looks good. And we do not fear God. And because of that posture, you're not just in rebellion against God. We're not just out of relationship with him from birth, but we're also vulnerable. To the fatal attacks of our enemy. Our souls are exposed to the threats of our enemy who seeks to undo us. Now, here is the great news of the gospel. God provides an answer. Look at verses 21 and 22 of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. I don't have it but there's something outside of me that has been promised to be provided for me. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the good news. That's the centerpiece of what we proclaim here at Covenant, that God provides this salvation. He gives us His perfect, holy, perpetual, eternal righteousness and that righteousness is bulletproof. How do I know? Because of what he says next, particularly in verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is a righteousness that diverts the wrath of God. It absorbs it like a Kevlar vest or like the, the Roman armor of old. It ricochets off and it sends that arms, those bullets, to be absorbed 
in something else, namely in the person and the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so if we, when we wear that identity, there's nothing our enemy can throw at us that's going to do us eternal harm. But here's the thing, you have to wear it. You have to put it on. That's what he says here in verse 14 of Ephesians 6. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. There's no assumption by Paul that you're going to wear this intentionally every day. There's, there's got to be a sense of intentionality about that. And so how do, you, how do you do this? How do you put it on? You ever got something, piece of clothing, piece of sports equipment, or you're like me and the first time your, your wife leaves home, and you've got, an, you've got an infant, you've got a toddler daughter, and you've never dealt with girls' clothes before, and the buttons are on the wrong side, and nothing seems to work like it's supposed to, and you put the arm through a hole that apparently the head's supposed to go through, and you, I don't know what to do. You ever been there? You ever had something? You didn't know how to wear it? You had to have somebody else show you how to do it? All right, we're about to learn how, how do you wear this armor, the breastplate of righteousness. Four ways. First of all, it starts with the mind. If you don't discipline your mind daily, you will never wear the armor properly. There's this riveting uh, story within a larger story in Genesis 39. It's the story of Joseph. Joseph, by this point in the story, has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's been horribly betrayed. Somehow he digs himself out of the pit. He finds himself in the employ of this wealthy man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar has put such trust in Joseph that he says to him, now I'm giving you my whole estate to manage. You treat it as though it were yours. Everything I have is yours, except my wife. Well, apparently Potiphar's wife didn't like that part of the deal. For whatever reason, she begins to pursue this young man named Joseph, and she does it aggressively. Now think for a moment about Joseph, because what he says to her is, is right. It's almost reflexive. It's almost natural. The righteousness that comes from his lips. How can I do this wicked thing? How can I do this? Well, where'd that come from? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Where, where'd that reflexive righteousness come from? If Paul tells us in Romans 3, we don't have it, where'd Joseph get it? How'd that happen? Well, it started with the mind. It started with understanding right and wrong. It started with, with making some pre-commitments before you find yourself in a situation like that. Because otherwise, you're going to be tempted to do the easy thing. Joseph's a young guy. This woman, I don't, we don't know, probably a very attractive woman, an older woman coming after him. He's probably thinking to himself, of all the betrayal that I have dealt with and all the ways that I've been done wrong and I don't have anybody in my life and it's not my fault that her husband's not satisfying her apparently. And so why can't I just do this and have a little fun on the side? Furthermore, if I choose not to do this, she's been pursuing me so aggressively, she might get offended to the point that I, it might actually cost me dearly to do do the right thing. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that's exactly what happened. He says no, she screams rape, he goes to prison. Because she's got the power and the position and the privilege in this relationship. He's the household servant. How do you do that? How do you, how do you willfully choose 
when you could do the wrong thing and have some temporary pleasure in that situation, how on earth do you willfully choose the right thing when you know you're probably going to suffer for it? I mean, it stinks to be you when you're in that situation, doesn't it? How do you do it? You do it by training, beginning in your mind, this is right and this is wrong, and no matter what comes my way, I will live by principles of righteousness. It starts with Paul's injunction. Look at Philippians 4. He says, there is a peace from God that surpasses all understanding that can be given to us and it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, here's what we need to do. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. So let me just ask you right out of the gate. How's your thought life? How's your thought life? What goes on in your mind? What, what kind of stuff do you put in your mind? How's your media intake, okay? And I'm not talking about movie ratings and words you should or shouldn't listen to. All that is a matter of personal conscience, uh, the kind of impact, and, and, and frankly, whether or not you have small kids in the house. I'm talking about whether the things you listen to bring you to a place of depression, bring you to a place of angst, bring you to a place of anger. You start thinking about a wider sense of what it looks like to fill your mind with crap. We're not just talking about cussing and body parts. We're talking about ideas. We're talking about vitriol. We're talking about tone. We're talking about attitude, which means we're talking about American news media, social media. Some of you might even just need to turn that off. Because if you're watching any of the big three or any of the cable, you're more entertained than you are being informed anyway. But that entertainment, if it rises up angst in you, if it creates fear of the other, how's your mind? What's your general attitude toward God, toward others? It makes a difference because every time you choose the right mentality, you are strengthening that breastplate that protects your vital organs. So it starts with the mind, but then it continues with right choices. It's one thing to have one of these vests hanging up in your closet. It's quite another thing to get up and actually put it on, isn't it? Just like there's a difference between concept and application. And let me tell you, that gap, brothers and sisters, it is huge in our culture. Huge. The number of people who believe the right things versus the number of people who do the right things. This is where we are. That's where we are. You know, evangelical Christians supposedly make up one-third of, uh, of, the, of the American population. But when you start asking those questions that would actually define what it means to be an evangelical, not just what you believe, but what you do, asking you questions about your Bible intake and how often you spend time in prayer with the Lord and how often you actually come to the end of the body of Christ and serve within the body of Christ and how charitable you are and all those things, how often you share your faith. A very important subject that we're going to be bringing up very late fall this year and going into Christmas because we don't have nearly enough people talking about someone that they say they're in love with. You start defining all of that in terms of, no, not just what you believe, what do you do? When I was in my early 20s, I met a guy in his 50s, an elder in his church, who was cheating on his wife. He knew the Bible better than I did. He had a master's degree that I was still working on. He knew everything. He could cross all the T's, dot all the I's. And you know what he did? He used all of that knowledge to justify his own behavior and even shift some of the blame to his wife. 
He had become so good at taking the right belief and justifying on that basis doing the wrong thing. How perverted do you have to be to get to that point? So this, this it can't start, it starts in the mind, but it can't stay there. It has to continue with the right choices. I'll tell you, I learned when I talked to that guy, old enough to be my father. I, I learned that day, man, there is a world of difference when you look at the church and you see particularly all the males. There's a world of difference between being a man of God and being a church boy. A world of difference. And you can't always tell them apart on the surface. Sometimes you got to peel back the onion, see exactly what you're dealing with, exactly who you're dealing with. And that's tough, especially with the dudes. Ladies, you got your own eccentricities. We'll talk about those later. Here's the question you got to ask yourself Do I consistently choose what I know is right? All right. When the choice comes to serve God or myself, What's the pattern of my life? I'm not asking if you blow it or you don't blow it. We're all going to blow it from time to time. I'm saying when, we, when you look at the pattern and the course of your entire life, what, what, do you say, what would you say is consistent? Doing what is better for you or doing what brings glory to God? Because sometimes those two are at odds with one another. You know, something you'll notice about those vests when you put them on, it's one of the reasons I'm not wearing it right now and being a really bad example. They're hot. Okay. I didn't leave it on nearly as, as long this service as I did at the earlier service because by the time I took it off, I had like wet spots on me. It was gross. They're hot. Can you imagine a police officer putting that thing on and then putting a, more stuff on on top of that and then being out in this 90-degree heat today? They're hot. It costs you something to wear that armor. Here's the other thing about it. It's heavy. That's not as heavy as it used to be. Technology's come a long way. It only weighs three or four pounds. It's amazing to me that something like that will actually stop a high-caliber bullet. It will. Um, if you go back years before, those things were heavier, but there's still a little bit of weight there. It, it's still going to add three or four pounds to your, to your body weight. It's, it's, it's going to be bulky around you. It's going to feel, when I put it on at the 9 o'clock, I'm like, it's like a corset. And then I, I said, Does it, did, it, did it shave off a little bit? Like, well, it, it, it's, there's a cost. You get what I'm saying? There's a cost to putting this on. It's not always going to be comfortable. Your faith is like that. This, this attitude of righteousness and always choosing the right things, that, that's what the Scriptures are challenging us to do. If your faith, if the, if the decisions in your life are not occasionally made a little bit hot or a little bit heavy, by your faith, your faith might not be genuine. It was a great reformer, Martin Luther, who said, a faith that costs nothing is ultimately worth nothing. If this is just about getting your Jesus moment for about an hour on a Sunday, you might be going to hell. Ask yourself, what, what is the course of my life? Am I consistently thinking about what will bring glory to God, if your if your if your faith again is not occasionally made heavy every so often by doing the right thing, even if it costs you something, it might just be intellectualism, it might be traditionalism, it may be empty religion. But if you don't feel the weight, you may be exposed. 
So don't just let it start with the mind. Let it work its way out into the choices that you make every day. Now, here's the only way that can happen. It is if it is worn in the power of God. Okay? This takes us back to Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. So all the pieces of armor, including the breastplate of righteousness, is under this umbrella that what we do, we do in the Lord. Ephesians says, this protects me like a Kevlar vest. It's the same righteousness that Romans 3 tells me I don't intrinsically have. It has to come from God. Without God, I don't have any protection. And this may, by the way, be one of the most subtle and deadly tactics that our enemy uses is to, is to fool us into thinking that we're protected when we're really not. One of the ways he does that is to, to delude us into thinking that if I've got something that I'm feeling particularly confident about, that that's a strength in my life, and I don't have to worry about that. What I need to worry about is my weaknesses. Isn't that typically how it goes? Here's where I'm weak. That's where we'll say, this is where the enemy is attacking. Well, what about your marriage? Well, I'm, yeah, that's strong. That's stronger than it's ever been. It's good. It's good. You ever wonder why people say stuff like that and like the next month they're in divorce court? Because the enemy is subtle. Listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. Satan already has you in your weaknesses. That's why they're weaknesses. He's going to go after what you perceive as strength. He's going to come after you at levels where pride has welled up within your soul and you're saying foolishly to your creator, I got this. No, you don't got this. This has to be done in the power of God. It was Mark Twain that put it this way. He said, it is easier to fool a man than it is to convince a man that he has been fooled. I mean, it's one thing for you to go, yeah, this is a weakness. It's, yeah, okay. It's more difficult to convince people that there's an area of your life where you you got your chest stuck out and you're strutting like a rooster and that's where you're going to go down. Because your enemy knows that's a point of vulnerability. Every place in my soul where there is pride, I am unprotected. I'm unprotected. And the enemy's going to come after me. Some of you, you're religious and you got that all figured out and there's never a problem or at least you don't ever say that there's a problem and you look at other people and you go, well, if they just live like I did, if they just make the choices that I would make, if they would just think the way I would think, everything would be fine. I don't understand why everybody doesn't do everything just like me. You're vulnerable. If everybody did everything just like you, we'd all be dead. You're vulnerable. Because you refuse to do this in the power of God. It can happen in pastoral ministry. Early in my church planting days, I just, I've made so many stupid mistakes. I mean, I, I should be driving a truck for a living, honestly. Um, I, I did. But the biggest mistake was I, try, I was trying to do everything myself. I was thinking everything was dependent on me. I wasn't delegating it out. I wasn't raising up the kind of leaders I needed to raise up. Everything was being absorbed in me. And so something's got to suffer, right, if you're going to do that. And, and so here's what I did. Even though uh, proclam proclaiming the Word of God is not the only thing a pastor does, it is the primary and the most important thing that any pastor can do. And yet what I did in that time is I was trying to grow the church. So, so I got to get the systems right, and I got I got to do this and do that, and I got to get the trinkets, and I got to make sure that we're, you know, giving away iPads or whatever. Well, we weren't giving away iPads in 2002. That didn't exist. But you know what I'm saying. 
whatever kind of gimmicky thing we got to do to get the numbers up. And what was suffering was my time in the Word of God. Now, think for, for a moment about that. You know why it was suffering? Because I felt like I had this. I said, I can lean into my preaching gift. Okay? There's a distinction between hermeneutics, which is the understanding of Scripture, and what in seminary we refer to as homiletics, which is the delivery of a sermon in a way that people can clearly understand it. But when homiletics begins to replace hermeneutics, what you end up with is a motivational speech, not a word from God. And that's what was happening in my life. I was leaning into my gifts as a speaker, thinking to myself, I will get to uh, deep study and exegesis, and I will, you know, rather than do that now and have everything I say lifted from and anchored in the words of God so that my people who don't really care what I think, they want to hear from God, I can give them that. Instead of doing that, I thought, you know what, my rhetorical flourish will cover that up for the moment while I work on these other more pressing things, and my people will never know. And guess what? They didn't. A lot of them were young Christians that they didn't know. And here we all were, them thinking they were hearing something profound, me thinking that I was saying something profound. All of us vulnerable. Because I did not do the right thing in the power of God. That's what Paul's warning us against here. And you know what it did? It didn't just hurt the church I was trying to plant. It hurt me because in an area where I thought I was strong, I said, I'll carry this on my own. You know what that resulted in? Less time that this old boy spent with his nose between the pages of God's Word. You see how pride? Yeah, I'm a good speaker. I'm good at this. I'm good at that. I got this. Can lead you to a place of vulnerability the way it did to me so many years ago. Anything with eternal value is done wholly and completely in the power of God. This is Paul's point. This is the armor of God. Self-sufficiency is deadly when we talk about spiritual warfare. It's deadly. But humility, dependency, it's like the Velcro on that Kevlar. It, it, it holds it in place. It keeps it where it needs to be. God's power starts with the mind, moves from there to the right choices, done in the power of God. And if you don't know how to do it, that's the fourth thing. It is modeled by Jesus. This is powerful passage in Romans 5 that says this, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So we had a one man, Adam, who stood in a garden and disobeyed. You have another man, Jesus, who was humble and obedient unto death, and he made us righteous again. We have an example in him. Sometimes written instructions aren't enough, are they? Um, Officer David Kelvington from the Shepherd University Police Department, who's a member of this body, one of our brothers in Christ, that's his vest. He brought it into my office one day. He didn't just drop it off with a set of instructions, or even worse, with no instructions. He showed me this is how you wear it. Because 
I don't want, we got a lot of law enforcement in this church. I don't want them looking at you going, he looks like an idiot. Look, at him, he's wearing that thing backwards. Look, he put this over, what, what's he doing? Like, yeah, don't, he didn't say it that way, but I, I appreciate the offer to make sure I did this right, right? I had to have an example. The scripture tells us that we have an example in the person of Jesus. If you want to look, know what it looks like to wear the breastplate of righteousness, to have the mind of Christ, to make those right choices consistently, to do it dependent upon the power of God, you look at Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, you see a couple of things. Number one, everything he did, he did to please his Father. Now look at these words from John 8. Imagine God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, saying this, I, I do nothing on my own authority. If Jesus said that, don't you think that's something we ought to have? Shouldn't that be a, a disposition that we would embody as his people? I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's what it looks like to wear the breastplate of righteousness. I just want to please the Father. That, that's all I want to do. Here's the other side of that. He refused in every circumstance he was offered to disobey that mandate. You think about it. The crowds wanted him to be king. He chose righteousness over celebrity. He had the opportunity to, for comfort from uh, from a number of different fronts, he chose righteousness, and with it, he knew he was also choosing death on a cross. When the enemy himself, Satan, in the desert, offered him a path of compromise, if you will just bow down and worship me, Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and only him you will serve. At every point at which he had an opportunity to compromise, he refused to compromise because his sole desire was to please his Father. Have you ever noticed how the broad narrative of Scripture so beautifully connects all of this and shows us the story of redemption? There was a man named Adam who stood defiantly in a garden and said, not your will, but mine. And that brought death. But there was another man named Jesus who knelt in humility in another garden and said, not my will, but yours, and he brought life. If you want to know what a righteous life that is impenetrable by the attacks of your enemy looks like, look at the life and the person and the work of Jesus. Because you, you, you can choose either one you want. You could choose the path of Adam, who had everything. He had everything. You ever thought about that? Everything you ever want to eat, everything you ever want to make you happy, everything I give you, there's just this one thing I want you to stay away from. You can have everything else. And Adam was defiant and prideful and unrighteous. And then he, he hides from the Lord. So I don't know how you hide. He's not only sinful, he's also apparently profoundly stupid. How do you hide from an omnipresent God, the Lord comes down to look for him in the cool of the day. Adam, where are you and what have you done? And what does Adam say? Lord, that woman you gave me. See, ladies, dude's been doing this for thousands of years. 
I had a, I did a marriage conference once, and for some reason, I think, I think she was, it was, it was a young single, like a single mom. She was there, and she'd been married once to some deadbeat guy. And anyway, she comes up to me, and and um, she said, "I, you know, thank you so much for what you said. I am praying that God would send me a good man." <laughs> and I said, "Wow, that's a, that's a tall order." And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, there are no good men. There are only worthless pigs. That's all we are. But dear sister, let me tell you something. If we can find you a worthless pig that's full of the Holy Spirit, we got something to work with. Okay? We got to do this wearing the armor that God has given us. Otherwise, we're going to be like our father Adam, and we're, we're going to do the wrong thing. And so ask yourself this, when the obstacles in your life, what are, the, what are the obstacles in your life that might keep you spiritually exposed at the level of your vital organs? Is it entertainment? Is it pride? Is it selfishness? Is it friendships? Is it anger? Is it the media that you take in? Is it family? Family, yes, family can become an idol. We'll get into that later. Is it money? Oh my gosh, how money has ruined us. Absolutely ruined us at every fundamental level. Greed. Oh. What other things keep you from being righteous? Is it work? All your identity is wrapped up in what you do. What is God asking you to drop so that you can pick up the breastplate and put it on and wear it consistently? What do you need to turn away from so that you can follow the model set for you by Jesus himself? Here's the big question. Do I consistently do what is right? Okay. So the, the belt of truth was, am I the same person in front of everybody and also when nobody's looking? All right, is there consistency in my life? Is there integrity in my life? Breastplate of righteousness? Do I do what is right when I am faced with choices? Answering that question will reveal whether at this moment you are wearing this particular piece of armor. Seems mundane, doesn't it? It's not, nothing really glamorous about this, but that's the question. You know, there's one interesting thing about the breastplate. Uh, Terry Neal designed this for me, and you'll see... Um, extra pieces of armor on this suit as, uh, as we move through this series together. But if you turn this thing around the back, you'll notice it's stitched together here and there's some openings. And there's some debate about the level, whether it was closed off. Most, most people who understand Roman warfare and military and the history behind this will tell you there was a gap right here. Many of them will tell you it was even a little bit wider than this. But the point is, it, you had complete coverage in the front, but in the back, you were vulnerable. There were actually spots back there. And here's the reason behind that. It was never expected that a Roman soldier would run from anything. You don't run away from your enemy. You run toward your enemy. And you run toward your enemy in a way that you are armored and clothed so that anything that comes your way is either absorbed in the armor or it ricochets 
off of it. Now, here's the great news of the gospel. If you are simply doing what is right, I cannot, the brothers and sisters, promise you peace and prosperity and shelter from all manner of storms. In fact, the warfare may intensify because you do these things and you do the right things and you have the right mindset and you do what you do in the power of God. You will attract your enemy when you do that kind of thing. So it might even get harder before it gets easier. But here's what I can promise you on the authority of the Word of God. that If you will put this armor on and you will make those right choices in the power of God, you do not need to be afraid and you do not need to run. All you need to do is what you know is right. And the Lord will take care of the rest. He will do it. He will do it. Prepare yourself mentally. Make the right choices in the power of God, following the model of Jesus himself, who overwhelmingly conquered death, hell, and the grave. And you will survive with all of your vital organs still intact. In fact, I will promise you this. If you will do these things wearing the breastplate of righteousness, you will do more than survive. You will overwhelmingly conquer, just like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these wonderful people, and I pray today that you would encourage us to think what is right, to do what is right, to lean into who is right, and to look to the Lord Jesus as our model as we wear this thing called the breastplate of righteousness. Lord, I, I'm certain that there are probably people here right now who do not know you, and they are exposed, and they are vulnerable, and I pray today that they would turn to you in faith, that they would turn from their sins, and that you as a result would clothe them in your perfect righteousness, so that your wrath is absorbed, and so that they cease to be your enemy and become your friend. And Father, I just pray that, that you would empower us all today to keep that armor on, and may we be overwhelmingly victorious for your greater glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.